You know, my little business, one top 100 businesses in the UK, I went to number 10 Downing Street and I was sending emails and bringing people on. I sold a bunch of books then I sold cups, mugs, T-shirts, merchandising, consulting, a mentorship, a course. And that was mad to everyone because they built these incredible businesses and I had a microphone, a laptop and an internet connection. That's Jason Allen Scott, award-winning entrepreneur, event professional and podcast producer of profitable shows who has sold several businesses on three continents including two podcast shows. He was invited to number 10 Downing Street in 2016 to talk storytelling and story selling for the podcast success. In this episode, Jason and I discuss what it takes to succeed in business and why podcasts are the only fair medium. Tune in and find out more, especially if you are considering a podcast of your own. I'm Fanola Howard, intuitive marketer, your host and founder of How Great Marketing Works. I believe that every business has a story to tell because that's how the market decides whether to buy or not. And your story has to resonate with who you are and with the people you want to serve. And this podcast is about helping you reach the market in a way that feels right to you. So if you're an entrepreneur with a dream you want to make real, then this is the podcast for you because great marketing is your truth shared. And today I wanted you to meet somebody who is really interesting and appropriate because this is a podcast. I know many of you have asked me about podcasting for business and I was lucky enough to meet uh, the lovely Jason Allen Scott not too long ago and I fully intend to work with him very shortly, but he knows about all things podcasting. But more than that, he kind of knows about business, entrepreneurship, success, and I love the way he thinks about stuff. It's about data and heart and making an impact in someone's ears that goes straight to their minds. Welcome, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. Long time fan, first time guest. <laughs> you said that before. <laughs> I have never said that before. I absolutely was. <laughs> it's lovely to have you with me. I love having this conversation with you. So let's just get stuck in. So I'd love you to share. You've had a very interesting journey and because you have a strong sales background, I know. How did you move yeah. into the entrepreneurial space? Um, the strange thing is chronologically, I was in the entrepreneurial space before I was in the sales space. Mm -hmm. So when I was a kid, I grew up in Cape Town, South Africa, in a place called Rugby, which uh, Rugby, Brooklyn, uh, Zonicus, Aesterplatt, for those that are geographically minded in Southern Africa, is an area that is predominantly for poor whites uh, and other mixed races, all kind of put together under council flats and council houses. My grandfather worked for a council, so we had a house. There were eight of us in a two-bedroom. Um, this, was, you know, I never think of South Africa as having the poor whites. I never think of that. Well, South Africa doesn't want you to think about that. According to their own statistics, there's less than 8,000 of us in the whole of South Africa with 44 million people, which is just a nonsense statistic. There's a lot of poor yeah. whites. We just It, it doesn't yeah. get much press coverage. It doesn't sell papers and magazines and media. Interesting. There's a lot of us. Please go on. When I was uh, five years old, there were these flyers all on the walls for something called the Boswell Wilkie Circus. And there was an elephant and a tiger and lions. And I ran home and I said to my grandmother, who predominantly raised me, um, I want to go to the Boswell Wilkie Circus. And she said, yeah, everyone wants to go to the Wilkie Circus, but you you can't. We can't, we can't go. We can't afford it. It's not going to happen. I asked, why not? And she said, well, because we can't afford it. You know, no one, no one can go. 
And all I heard from that sentence is no one could go. So I went and knocked on every door in the council flat that was behind our house, which is called Elbow Gardens. It became Elbow Mansions when they gentrified the area. Um, and I said, hey, if you want to come to the circus, then give me some money and we can go to the circus. And they said, sure, how much is it? And I said, well, whatever you can afford. Back then, these Catholic nuns used to come to our house and knock on the door and they'd always say, you know, please give some money to the church. And then my grandmother would always say, how much do I give you? And they said, whatever your conscience allows, whatever you mm. can afford. So I think this, this idea stuck in my head. So I said, whatever you can afford. And they gave me money. And I went door to door to door, this little five-year-old. And um, eventually got quite a, a, a pile of cash. I feel really guilty about it now. So looking back. smart. Yeah, I um I ran to the store. The second thing I learned very quickly, I ran to the to the store and I bought everything I'd ever wanted at the shop. That we had a shop called the Hut. Um and then ran home and immediately started eating the sweets and the chocolates and the bread and the peanut butter and like all the things I wanted. And my grandmother walked in and said, Oh, where'd you get all this from? <laughs> and I said, Well, I went and I knocked on everyone's door and yeah, everyone wants to go to the circus. It's not just us. And they gave me their money and I went and bought all this. And she went, okay, you've just learned the first lesson of business, which is to test an idea and get paid. Now you have to do something about it. You can't let those people down. So what are you going to do? How are you going to make the circus? And I put on a circus. We had a backyard. Most people didn't have backyards um, because my grandfather worked at the council. And I got kids to play elephants and jugglers. And I mean, it was terrible, but my grandmother took the rest of the money and we made sandwiches and um, water and this syrup called limos. And everyone came and they sat down and the kids all did things. And I was the ringmaster, um, as my grandfather used to say, a regular P.T. Barnum. And I got everyone in and that was my first business, my first business lesson ever, pre-sell and then deliver. That's just beautiful. Yeah, it, it, it really shaped the rest of my life because... Everything I did after that was a reflection of that moment. It was this idea that was there a need? Was it a real need? Could you get people to pay for it? And then could you put on something that no one would ask for a refund? And we didn't get a single person to ask for a refund. Um, and to execute on a promise. And I think that was that was massive. That was absolutely massive. And then my father uh, started selling Irish whiskey, which wasn't available in South Africa because of apartheid. And um, Jameson's Irish whiskey, triple distilled. I still remember the sales to this day. And seeing my dad- Triple distilled. Yeah, triple distilled. So less hangover, less impurities, um, made by the French company, Pernod Ricard. And I uh, I watched my dad take us from living in this council house, the eight of us, my uncle, my aunt, my father, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, my grandfather, uh, to our own little flat with a mattress and a motorbike. And I was like, wow, sales, sales is amazing. Because my dad didn't, you know, I'm the first person to finish high school in, in my entire family. He didn't finish high school. He didn't, he had no education, but he could, he could sell, he could talk, he could explain, he could talk features and benefits and he could do this whole thing. And and I was, I was, again, I was obsessed. I went to them on these sales calls. I went to liquor stores, restaurants. We'd go into a restaurant. My dad would order an Irish coffee. He'd take a sip. He'd go, this this doesn't taste right. Can you show me what you're using? They'd bring out Glenfiddich. He'd say, well, that's Scottish. That's not Irish. And then they'd go, well, we don't have Irish whiskey because of the apartheid. He'd say, oh, really? Because I've got some in my boot and my car. <laughs> and then he would break yeah. a crate of it and then we'd sign deals. Um, and I loved it. And when I started my first business, which is called OPM, uh, one year after high school, uh, other people's money, OPM. It was the same idea. It was like, okay, if I get people's money for printed promotional clothing, then I can go buy the t-shirt, then I can get the print done, then I can do the delivery and I just take the money in between. 
And that set me up for entrepreneurship. That seeing the alchemy that, and that's all it is, it's alchemy. You come up with an idea and you found a way to make it valuable that someone will give you actual cash money to get this thing that doesn't even exist yet, that was only invented in your head. Um, that changed my life forever. Uh, literally everything I did after that was based on those two things. But you know, I like that your grandmother spun it in a way that you had to deliver. Oh yeah. Like it wasn't that other people's money and you just take the money. It was other people's money is a promise that you have to deliver on. Yeah, she, um, my my grandmother was a, a big believer in congruence that if you said something, you had to follow it up with action. That anything that was just said was just said. It was it was fabrigazi. It was very dust. It was peeing in the wind, as my grandfather would say. So you didn't want any of that. Yeah, because we had a conversation about marketing as manipulation. That it's you know it's tarred with such a negative brush. For me, it's a leverage. It's a way to lever your dreams to actually allow you to make something real. And I've loved this conversation. You tell the story. I'll let you share it here now as well, just as a rationale for why would you ever manipulate like this idea of uh, uh, example of Zappos and Amazon? Yeah. Um, So so those that don't know, um, Zappos was a online shoe retailer. They sold shoes through the internet before that was a thing that everyone did. And we're talking way back when. But Amazon bought Zappos for $1.3 billion and no one could understand why. Because Amazon delivered things through the internet. So how hard would it be just to add shoes? And Mr. Jeffrey Archer Bezos um, was asked why. And he said, I'll tell you why. He said, because what they have is something we can't replicate, which is the promise to deliver and then the follow-up after delivering. Zappos was the first company at the time to offer a 364-day return. You could buy a pair of shoes, try on a shoes, wear shoes for almost a year solid. And if you are unhappy, you could send it back for free. All shipping was free of charge. They, they delivered on their promise. And because of that, they had clients for life. And I think that's something we're seeing a lot right now. You know, we're seeing companies with gigantic valuations and massive money behind them. And all of a sudden, their numbers are falling down. Um, Salesforce, one of the greatest SaaS companies in the world, which is software as a service, just had the worst quarter on quarter. And they've worked out that the only way for that company to be profitable is if the profit comes in in the next 10 years off the lifetime value of a client. They need to wait 10 years to make up for how much it costs them to get in front of a client. That's basically what that is, client acquisition cost. Well, that's mad. And they can't guarantee that. But with Zappos, they knew that if they could do what they did, if they could literally deliver on a promise, then you'd be brand loyal for life. And Amazon knew that that was the best purchase they could ever make. And at the heart of Zappos was the idea of making customers happy. Correct. They have a book and everything about it. it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good book. And they even turned it into a graphic novel as well. Oh, I didn't know that. But yeah, really cool. Um, Tell me more now. So after this, what happened? So um, I, (laughs) as I mentioned, I wasn't educated. I must have dyslexic. Uh, Reading does not come easy to me. And I managed to get a massive deal with the South African equivalent of Tesco's. uh, It's called Allwords. So anyway, there was a a company called ShopRite Checkers, which is our Tesco's. And 
I got to deal with them for a hundred thousand a month, which is a yellow t-shirt, a white t-shirt with the yellow print of a smiley face. That's all it was. And I, I couldn't believe this because in less than 10 months, I was going to be a millionaire and I was 25, 26 years old. Um, and I was like, wow, I did this from I, a business card and a car. I didn't have anything else. Didn't read the small print, which said that they paid 190 days after delivery and delivery was 30 days after order. So 210 days was when they could pay, which means I had to create that inventory month after month, plus delivery, plus shipping, plus printing, um, and get it there. And the first problem that I had, which is one of the ships didn't come in with my t-shirts from China, my company was gone. And being uneducated and not knowing anyone who was educated, I went to my family and said, you know, what do I do? And my dad was the most educated man I knew. And, you know, he worked for a business, a big, you know, massive company. And he said, well, go speak to my friend, Alan. Um, and Alan was a loan shark with a 10% VIG, which means a 10% interest week after week, not month after month, week after week. And yeah, and it didn't take long before he pretty much owned my company and I signed it at my first ever acquisition for like less than a P. Um, here's the company, it's yours, all the shares are yours. And I didn't really know what to do. And I was dating an amazing uh, woman at the time. And she sort of said, well, you've got nothing to lose. That's the benefit of starting at zero. You have nothing to lose. Let's do something. Let's go somewhere. And I'd never been anywhere in the world and never done anything for work. And I um, packed my bags, went to a, a shop over there called Flight Center, which is all over the world. And I said, I want to go to where the beach was shot. Uh, again, Google didn't exist. Please give me a break. And she was like, well, well where is it? And I was like, you know, where the ties are. Because in, in the book, The Beach, they have ties. And she went, oh, Taiwan. I can get you a ticket to Taiwan. And I flew to Taiwan, which by the way, is not where the beach was filmed. It was Thailand no. where the beach was filmed. Um, there's no beaches <laughs> where we went, which is a place called Taichung in Taiwan in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we lasted, I think, a week. And again, my very smart girlfriend uh, said, we need to pack up and fly to Thailand because it's clearly not the right place. Went to Thailand. We worked as English teachers for a place called Inlingua. Um, We then got jobs into schools. I worked for American School of Bangkok. And um, one of the semesters, a couple of my kids didn't come back. And I sort of said, oh, what happened to those kids? Like, Because most of the kids, I suppose, are ambassadors, kids, or wealthy business people's kids. And they said, oh, no, no, they, 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 they're gone. And I was like, oh, where, where did they go to? And they went, no, no, they they drowned. And I was like, what? And it was said with such familiarity in a way that was flippant almost. Like, like this happens every year during the monsoon. And I was like, this is, uh, this is unacceptable. And I started a swimming school called Bangkok Swimming School. It was only going to be for Bangkok. It was just Bangkok. And then it was Bangna, which is the area next to it. And then it was the next place, the next place. And we ended up building this thing over two years. And I sold it. And I retired uh, at the ripe old age of 29. I thought I'd never have to work again. And I just traveled for a bit. I saw some other places and London was one of them. And I fell madly in love with London. And then things didn't work out with my partner, sadly. And sh she got the better end of that particular breakup. And I started again from scratch in the UK at the age of 30. Um, went to go work for a gym franchise, did very well. I uh, ended up becoming part of like a brain think tank of like, how do we sell a gym that doesn't exist? How do you make the most money out of it? And we did very, very well uh, for a gym in the bank in central London. Uh, and that ended up being sold to Virgin, which became Virgin Active. And that's all their part of their gyms. That was amazing. Um, Staying on as a consultant for a while to help on. And then one of my friends was in events and she said, I think you would do so well in events. You love people. You love making a, a story. And and I was like, really? I've never even organized my own birthday party. And she went, it's not about that. 
and I wanted to go work for a company, uh, an M&A company, which is a company that buys distressed assets or buildings that aren't doing well or pubs that aren't doing well. And then we would put this idea together called Come, Stay and Play, which is you come, you have a drink, you stay for a dinner and you play, you, you dance the night away till they close. Um, and yeah, we had 40 odd venues at one stage and then 68 at its height before I went out on my own and said, I want to do my own thing. I went to try and buy an events company, which um, I think I lasted a week. Uh, and an amazing man reached out to me and said, you should, that's actually incorrect. The, a woman reached out to me and said, you should meet this man. And I think there's a chance you guys could do something great together. And I was like, I'd love to. Is there a chance for sweat equity? Can I work my way into ownership? Because I don't have enough money to, to get this venue. It was number one Leicester Square. And went to go work there. Um, Google started. Google was not my friend because all it did was talk about how there were all these terrible things that happened at number one Leicester Square. Um, but then social media came and that was my friend because you could talk directly to people and you could have dialogue. And I was like the penthouse lord. And I was like, I'm, I'm always going to wear a hat and I'm not going to wear socks. And you'll be able to find me at any point and I'll always be standing at the door and I'll take you up and I'll look after you. And I, caring about people, made sure I knew everyone's name. I memorized people's faces. Um, I worked out if they were going to be VIP or not VIP and, and et cetera, et cetera. I stayed on. I got top 100 in events in the world. Um, I launched a beauty pageant, which is to do with personalities and not looks. I helped with Miss Student University. It's a bunch of stuff. And then I got sick. I, um, I literally was in a shopping market with my dad. I'd flown back to South Africa, spent some time with my family. And the room suddenly got cloudy and cloudy and cloudy and then pitch black. And I said, dad, Dexter, my brother, I said, don't move. It could be a terrorist attack. We'd already lived through three terrorist attacks in South Africa. I was like, it's going to be fine. I'm thinking, you know, it's, it's probably a smoke. It's probably they've thrown in tear gas. And my father and brother were calm as day and just went, what are you talking about? And I said, the, it's gone black. The lights must be out. And they went, it hasn't gone black. Took me home, waited. Next day, still blind. Um, went to go see an optometrist. The pharmacist said, your eyes are working perfectly. I don't understand why you're blind. You should go see an optic uh, surgeon. Went to see an optic surgeon the day after that, um, very luckily. And they said that we think it's something called optic neuritis. Um, you should you should get an MRI when you go back to the UK. Went back to the UK, got an MRI, bunch of tests, EKG, et cetera. Um, and they found multiple scars on my brain, on my spine, multiple scars, multiple sclerosis, uh, Latin for scar is sclerosis. And found out I had this disease that, um, according to my neurologist, would take off 10 years of my life. And I couldn't work in a stressful environment. And events is the fifth most stressful career in the world. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I'm turning 40. So it's this real like midlife crisis um, 10 years late. And I, I said to my girlfriend, I am going to I and mean, I'd been divorced at the stage, by the way, just to throw that out there. Like, just one thing off <laughs> the next, next. I said, I'm going to start a podcast. I'm going to tell the story of what it's like to be 40, to find out that your whole world is turned upside down. And I'm going to try and build a business and share my learnings. And that was the guest list podcast. And that was 2015. And by the end of season one, spoiler alert, you can still find it on Spotify. I'm in the back of an Uber with my phone for a podcast. I'm moving it backwards and forwards with myself and my girlfriend. And she says, you should just pack all this in. It's been a massive fiasco. It's not even a failure. It's a fiasco. You paid a CTO that was building your code in English as the language versus Python, C++, all these languages of codes. He didn't even know what he was doing, but I didn't even know well enough to stop him from doing what he was doing. And um, and I shut it down. I shut everything down. And I was pretty much very depressed for about a couple of days. 
And then my LinkedIn started pinging, ping, 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 over 60 messages I'd never got. In fact, to this day, I've never had that many messages. And um, it was, we love your podcast. We learned what an MVP was. We learned how to start, you know, how to talk about a business. Who, the fact that you interviewed these incredible people. We thought it was a bit of a joke show. People thought it was like the UK office. Um, I was the bumbling idiot that didn't know what they were doing. So I was trying to understand technology and these terminologies. And, and I went, okay, I'm going to do this properly. Who are the biggest podcasters in the world? At the time, it was Pat Flynn, Lewis Howes, Mario Falio, uh, Johnny Dumas. And I did Pat, I did Lewis's course first. I think I did Pat's second. And I did John Lee Dumas's course, which was phenomenal. And then I got in the fire, I got a 15 minute call with John. And I said, what would you do if you were doing it again from day one? And he said, monetize from episode one. It should be a business. And, I, and that changed everything for me. I was like, okay. Okay, I have to stop you. Please. Because he always... <laughs> say so much. The thing that strikes me, and it's a question for you, is do you think that the fact that you didn't have a formal education meant that you came with a blank slate without preconceptions, with a curiosity to find a way and were not hampered by the baggage of knowledge? Do you understand what I mean by that? Yes. Because it just yes, seems that there was no, you didn't have this boundary ever that you could just see there was always, and perhaps it was even your grandmother. I don't know that there was always a way through. What do you feel about that? I'm glad you used the word feel because I think I have two, two feelings towards it. If you know a South African, and although I am British, I'm born in South Africa, which makes me a South African, um, <laughs> there is a South African expression, which is a bur maka plan which literally means a farmer always has to make a plan, that that's just the life of a farmer. And South Africa is a bit of the Wild West. It is a place where you are pretty much, you pretty much know that no one is coming to save you. That at no point is something just going to get better. It just isn't. There's a fantastic scene in Blood Diamond with Leonardo DiCaprio where the character is putting his hand through the sand and the, the protagonist says, do you ever wonder why the sand in Africa is red? If it's for all the blood that has been spilt on this continent. Mm. And I get that. I 100% get that. And I do think, I think my grandmother had a lot to do with it. She, I would often talk about going back. I, she was from, she said, she was from Dublin. She was the Dillons from Dublin. They're married and then... Um, there was a bunch of uh, criminals that came over, 5,000 of them from Ireland to South Africa for a better life, mm. for milk and honey. And um, and I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reverse that. I'm going to reverse that. I'm going to work it out. And she was like, good for you. Go for it. My father wasn't. He was the opposite. He was like, no one's ever going to go. You can't get out of here. You don't have the passport. You don't have the means. You don't have the funds. You don't have the... But she was so supportive of me always finding a way, that there was always a way, that... The, the word impossible was actually ridiculous, that the actual word was improbable. And or impossible. Yes. Yes. I mean, I wish you had said that. That was far better. But it was supposed to be. <laughs> Not mine. Yeah. <laughs> Not mine. <laughs> it's good. It's very good. My mom always said, um, nothing is impossible to those who try. I love that. And it's true. It's 100% true. The, I, I, I look back now and I have done some ridiculous, ridiculous things. And I think it's only because I tried. And because, and, I, and again, I say this with absolute humility, but it is the absolute truth. I'm bad at everything. And that is a blessing. 
right? I think some people are naturally good. So when they're bad, they, they almost want to give up because they're like, well, why aren't I good at this? But I'm bad at everything when I started. So I assume it's always going to be hard. That my only way of winning, inverted commas, for those that aren't seeing this, is by keep trying. It is by going, if, if I can do this thing over and over and over for a long enough period, the chances of me doing well at some point are very high. And I'm like, well, that's that's how the universe works. So that's all I'm going to do. I'm just going to keep trying for a long enough period of time that I will eventually work it out. And I remember reading a quote by Albert Einstein who said, no one would think I was smart if they realized how long I sit with a problem. And I think that's it. I think it's it's this... And maybe you're right. Maybe it is the lack of education. You kind of think to yourself, well, I haven't got any other options. If I don't work it out, no one's going to work it out for me. I I don't sense that. I sense it's that you have, that you're not scared by the blank page. Oh, no. Yeah, I'm definitely not. Definitely not. There's a a, a great um, Tim Ferriss quote, which is one of my mentors. Has anyone in the history of time less clever or stupider than you worked this out? Hmm. Because if they have, then you can't. Yeah. I love it. One of the things we, one of the questions I asked you, because you inspired the questions, I have to say, is what, what do you feel are the reasons that people don't succeed? Okay. So number one, which is something we, we shared that I experienced recently for the first time ever, which is imposter syndrome. I think mm-hmm. it can be a part of you, especially as a woman. Women have uh, confidence issues in, in numbers, We're talking about just statistically, not gender specific. Um, but statistically, a man will put his hand up and try for things that he is in no way, shape or form should be trying for. And a woman will think, I will wait until I am better equipped. The, the idea is very different. There's almost this this acceptance that a, a man can be a learner and then become an expert or is just an expert just because he says he is. Whereas a woman feels like she has to earn that status or that role of expert. There's, there's definitely the stronger imposter syndrome. It's called conditioning. <laughs> Conditioning. Yes, I believe that. I think I think you're 100 percent right. I did a talk for Leeds Beckett University called the New Agenda, and it was about it was about exactly that. And so many women got up and said, "We were conditioned to be like this." My brother wasn't. He was told to go off and do anything he wanted. Where I was told, "This is my role. This is what can be done and what can't be done." Um, I think that's one of the things. I think it's very very hard when the voice inside your head, forget about social standards, tells you you can't do something and you shouldn't do something, and you're not an expert. And and by the way, let me help with this. Two things. The first is the definition of expert is someone that knows more than the people in the space with them. Hence, an expert jury or an expert on a jury stand or a witness, expert witness, is someone that just knows more than the jury. That's it. That's all they have to do. They don't have to be a world expert or do a certain amount of years or a certain amount of hours. They just have to know more than the jury that sits behind them. So for most of us, Mm -hmm. we're an expert in our field simply by being in our field for more than 20 hours, because most people wouldn't have been in our field for 20 hours or more. And there's a whole talk on that on TED, so have a a listen. The second thing that I think happens is conditioning. I think Jerome famously said, you are the average of the five people. MIT did a study and found that if five people won't be different by more than 10% in their salaries and earnings, we socialize. It's, it's part of being a homonym, right? We, we are hominoid. We get together in groups and we become part of the group. And to fit in, we don't take as many chances because the lizard brain or whatever it is says you can't take a chance because you'll be kicked out of the cave. And then you're out there fighting against the woolly mammoth. And we don't want that. We don't want to take the chance. And I think lastly, the third biggest reason that people don't take enough chances 
is just fear to look stupid in front of their peers, their family, and people on the internet that they think care about them. But let me tell you the greatest thing about getting old, and I am getting old, is you learn the 20, 40, 60 rule. At 20, you think everyone is thinking about you and talking about you. At 40, you realize that no one cares to talk about you. And at 60, you don't care if anyone talks about you. Mm. And that is a massive thing. And I think that's why we see so many entrepreneurs at 40 suddenly take massive chances. People Mm. that never took chances in their life suddenly have this thing because they just realize no one is thinking about me. No one is worrying about me. The queen was one of the most incredible people in the world. She had done phenomenal things in history. It hasn't even been a year. I haven't heard a single conversation about the queen. No one's thinking Mm. about it. People just built into our genetics. I did a great, um, I had a great conversation with Deborah December in one of my previous podcasts. And it was when she hit 50, she realized that the days ahead were less than the days behind. And so she just went, oh, I'm going to do it now. I said this at 40. <laughs> that, yeah. There's probably more days behind me. There's going to be days ahead of me. Ah, oh, come on. You're going to live more than 80. <laughs> the average age of a Londoner is 76 for a woman and 73 for a man. Leave London. <laughs> Mark my words, if you listen to this, I will not be in London. Yes, I agree. 100% agree. When we talked during the week, you said there's another reason why businesses don't succeed. One is imposter syndrome. The second one is my favorite. You're going to have to remind me, give me and I'll tell you exactly, what, I'll give you a background, but what was the- You got to do the work. You got it. Oh my gosh. Yes, of course. Sorry. Reps, reps under the bar. You've got to do the work. People are petrified to do that. I, I just, I apologize. That's like the most obvious and the one I normally start with. Um, no, you you've said got it. To do the work. You've got to do the work. You've got to accept that you are going to suck at the beginning. You are going to fail. If you had given up when you tried to walk and just gone, well, that's it. And I tried, I fell down a couple of times. I'm just going to lie here for the rest of my life. None of us would be walking. None of us got in a car and knew how to drive. None of us got in a bicycle and knew how to cycle. All these things we just accepted were going to be so hard. So we did the work, hours and hours and hours of balance and belief and listening and executing against lessons that other people had learned before us. Well, right now we have the greatest library at our fingertips in mankind. We have a greater library than Alexander the Great, who had the greatest library in his time through the internet. Every single answer to every single question by every single person who had the right to answer that question has written it on the internet. And you just got to go and find it and then execute against it over and over and over. And how do you beat imposter syndrome? By showing all the proof to the brain why you are not an imposter. By going, I am an author. I've written this many drafts of a book. I've had this many books written. I've done that. You show the work. The reason we walk into a doctor's office and immediately feel safe is we see all those certificates on the walls that say they did the work. They did the 10,000 hours. They've done the work. It's the same reason that we use social proof and social media by taking photographs at different places to say, I've been there. I can talk about it. I've done this job. I can tell you about it. It's so important to just do the work. I have a, a fantastic client and friend, uh, shout out to Caleb Parker. He has a podcast called The Workball Podcast, which has done incredibly well. It's, it's a massive success. And a lot of it came from the fact that he has a great talent. He is a man. There's definitely a gender bias when it comes to podcasting um, and his field. He's an expert in his field. And then I had a blueprint. We put those two things together and he exploded. But because he exploded when he started his new show, which he's trying to do now, it's not taking off. And he's, he's, he's dumbfounded. And I'm like, did you do the work? How many calls have you done? How many emails have you done? 
How many reach outs have you done? You know, is it a hundred reach outs a day? Is it a hundred emails a day? Is it a hundred tweets and retweets and, and direct messages? Is it a hundred, you know, dollars a day you're spending on advertising to drive traffic back to you? Like, what, what, show me the work before you tell me you're a failure. And he went, yeah, I haven't, I haven't done that. Yeah, I love that. Let's say that again. Show me the work before you tell me you're a failure. I love it because so often from a marketing perspective, everybody wants the marketing magic formula. And I'm like, the work is the formula. The work is the secret sauce. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about you're on a stage um, again. <laughs> and uh, you are just after a guy who's just sold a book or you're, you're about to launch a book and you've already sold the books. But tell me, you, you know, that story of you being on the stage and which led to a podcast company. So I was, I was on a, I got an amazing opportunity to speak at an event with um, two incredible authors, a third, uh, a book agent and uh, three, sorry, three incredible authors and a book agent. Um, and it was called Book Camp, which is very smart. Uh, Shaw Wasserman, uh, OBE, I believe, uh, Lewis Howes, the biggest podcaster at the time, hundred, I think at the time he had 150 million downloads. Um, Chris Drucker, who had written the uh, bestseller, Youpreneur, and mm. myself. And I was literally in the back of the room, so nervous, walking up and down, up and down, up and down. And, um, and, and everyone was really sweet, don't get me wrong, but someone, and I'm not going to say who, because I don't want to name and shame, said something like, like pretty much ignored me a little bit and, and was maybe a bit colder than they could have been because I suppose I was the only person that no one knew why I was there in the green room. But they said, oh, we've done so well. We can't believe how well we've done. Like our book has done so well. We've just sold, oh, it's been two years and we've just hit 10,000 copies. And that split second, all the confidence in the, in the world, the confidence of someone who walks through Harvard and adds Harvard to their LinkedIn profile, um, hit me. And I was like, oh, hold on a second. And then I was standing in the back of the room and Lewis was doing the talk on stage. And Lewis said, it took me five years before I could monetize my podcast. So take your time and you write a book and you do a podcast and you do all the social media to drive traffic to your, to your book. Take the time. And I jumped on stage and there's films, lots of people filmed this and it was all over the socials. I went, firstly, first and foremost, like massive hands, like well done, Lewis Howes. Like this guy, is a, he's, he's just the, he's six foot three, he's American, he's got perfect teeth. He's just everything you'd expect. Uh, and then me. And I was like, I said, but let's stop for a second. I wrote a book. I only sold it through my podcast and I sold 55,000 copies in less than a week. And I monetized from episode one, season two, as per John Lee Dumas, who learned how to podcast through Lewis Howes, who was just on the stage. And that was such a, I think, awakening for everyone, not just myself, who was really nervous, but for everyone in the audience to go, well, if this guy did it, and then I, and then I would just, you know, then I was like, well, and by the way, I'm didn't, you know, I didn't go to university and I'm dyslexic and I've got ADD and, you know, I'm by myself. I have no friends and family in this country. Um, and I worked it out and I found the formula and I worked backwards and I, I had a business that I could plug into this thing that got me attention. And then I could build fanship and it went, and the difference in a fan and a, and a listener or even a viewer, is that a fan will do anything to support you. A fan will buy your art. A fan will will go to your events. A fan will wear the t-shirt. I mean, I'm wearing this outfit from this gentleman called Jerry Lorenzo. I am a fan. That is why I buy his clothes. The clothes are great, but it's because I want to support his art that that changes everything. And podcasting allows that. And I got up and I was like, and 
you know, my little business from my podcast, one top 100 businesses in the UK. I went to number 10 Downing Street. And that was mad to everyone because they they built these incredible businesses. And I had a microphone, a laptop, and an internet connection. And I was sending emails and bringing people on. And then I was I sold a book, a bunch of books that I sold, you know, cups, mugs, t-shirts, merchandising, consulting, a mentorship, a course. I just kept finding ways to monetize this instrument that got me out to a group of people who I served so well through lots of work. They wanted to support me in any way they could. So hiring me for talks, hiring me for consulting, hiring me for mentorship. You know, and then I found 31 ways to make money out of this medium. And it was a medium that seemed fair to me and still is the fairest of all mediums. And that's massive. I'll tell you why. Because there are 23 algorithmic factors that work against you if you have YouTube. There are 11 algorithmic factors as of last week on Instagram and Facebook, right? Most of them are pay-to-play schemes. Uh, I had breakfast with, um, as I mentioned, I've mentioned this a million times, but I had breakfast with the incredible people at TikTok who came down from Dublin. And I asked them, tell me how I win. Tell me, tell me the algorithm. Tell me the recipe to success on TikTok and I'll do it. I'll, I'll do the stupid dance. I'll, I'll do the, the viral song. I'll do whatever it takes. Just tell me, how do I win? And they said, two people in Beijing are the only ones that aren't there. They answer to that. And that isn't fair. To make me give you my time, most valuable asset I have in this whole world, and you can't tell me how I win is unfair. Podcasting has four algorithmic factors that haven't changed since 2015. Does it sound good? Did they press subscribe? Did they click five stars? Did they leave a comment? If you can do those things, yes, a bonus if you can do a compound growth. So if you get two people on this first day and four people on the second day and eight people on the third day, that also makes a massive difference, but it's it's not necessary for the algorithm. Apple, a trillion dollar company, will promote your podcast to people who listen to podcasts like yours. Where else do you get that? You don't. And it's Mm -hmm. only going to get harder. It's going to get harder and harder to create content that gets people's attention, especially if you're not in a bikini or if you're not some really good looking guy with great teeth who's over <laughs> six foot and happens to be American. Like it's just, it's set against you. And podcasting isn't. It, it just really, really isn't. And what, it's why I keep saying to everyone, this, you're not too late. There are 110 million YouTube channels. There's only 728,000 podcasts that put up an episode once a week. That's a wonderful opportunity to make something great. I also love you when you talk about podcasting. This idea that the ears are intimate, that someone that you get to tell your story into someone's ears and have this direct connection with them and that that and I feel that too. Like I feel that when we speak, that I see the person who's walking on the beach and that I'm speaking into their ears. It's it's a privilege. Like it's a privilege. It is. But more than that, it's a very extremely powerful medium. Do you want to say more about it? Absolutely. I want to say that there is nothing more powerful than a story. And if you think about it, a story is how your body speaks to your brain and mind about what happened in the day. It's called a dream. And it's just a story. When the Holocaust, one of the worst things that ever happened, and the reason we talk about it isn't because of how many people died, because there's been far bigger genocides, but because it happened and everyone said it couldn't. But the first thing they did was take away their stories. Where many believe the word destroy comes from, to de-story someone, to take away their stories. And that is powerful. 
and a reminder to all of us about the power of story. For thousands of years, we didn't even write things down. We simply told one another a story of how it came to be. And that story was passed on. The eyes are a battlefield of competition. My screens, my iPhone, my iPad, my Mac, the TV, people walking past, depending on the room, depending on the area. Because of the fact that I am a predator by genetics, I'm constantly on a lookout, alert in case I'm going to get attacked or in case there's an opportunity for food. So reward or, or fear is constantly getting my eyes going. But my ears, my ears allows one voice at a time, just you and me. And it's a short distance from your ear to your brain. And if you do a good job, from your brain to your mind and from your mind to your heart, and then people know, like, and trust you, and then they'll buy from you and they'll stay with you for life because you entertain, which is the 60%, and you educate, which is the 40%. And that's another thing people need to remember when it comes to storytelling. It's very easy to just go in with all the facts and be like, here it is. But if you told it as a story that edu- that entertains first and then educates, people will remember it forever. Powerful. Mm. Okay, so what makes a great podcast? You have to first have a reason to do a podcast. So Simon Sinek, starting with why, is very, very true for a podcast. Why are you doing it? Is it a hobby? How long are you going to run the hobby? Because there's going to be a monthly cost, right? A minimum of $12, I think, is is the cheapest hosting platform that allows you to, to put up more than two hours of content a week, or a, I believe it's a week. It might be a month now. Okay, so that's the first one. The second is, is it linked to anything? Is it linked to a business? Is it linked to a hobby? Is it? I talk about profitable podcasts, but I also remind people that profit can be anything. You know, I had a, a podcaster in the States who did it for swag. You know, he, he would review items. So he'd get free items sent to him. That's a profitable podcast. He loves opening up boxes and trying things out and explaining to his audience what he got and how it is and how it smells and how it tastes and what it does. Um, I have another one that uses it for access to events. So absolutely loves it. That's what profit is to them. And I said, everyone, think about the profit of your podcast. Maybe it's monetary. Maybe you need to make a certain amount out of it to pay your bills. Maybe it's a side income. Maybe it's a f- full-time income because you think, well, with a podcast, I can create content that can be on multiple channels. They can drive traffic back to me. And I, then as the personal brand, can move it into one of my products and services. You also said this in a different way as well, of you have to know what success looks like for you. Yes. Oh, sorry. That's, yeah, the first thing I say to every single person on every single first call. So I we... Many people choose their product and service. I've I've recently said on LinkedIn, we choose our clients. That's that's been our secret sauce for a podcast company. And the first thing I ask is, what does success look like? And if they say to me, Well, I want to be Joe Rogan, I want to be Russell Brand, I want to be, then I'll normally say, I'm not the right person for you. And unless unless I hear something in the next 22 minutes, I'm not your guy. I'm a business person and I understand the medium of of storytelling and I understand the importance of content to drive traffic to attention to something. But that's that's not a success metric I can help you with. Brand awareness, um, content re- repurposing, content creation, um, storytelling and story selling. Uh, these are all things I can help you do within three seasons. I can I can get mass downloads, lots of listeners, lots of content mentions. I can do all these things and I can promise it, right? Congruence. The thing I say I can do, I will do, or I give you a free season and then I'll, I'll be able to work it out by one more season. But I can't, I can't do anything else. And you need to know what success looks like because... If you don't know, you could drive right past it. You could be in a car 
where you're just driving and you realize you need petrol, but you don't know what a petrol station looks like. So you just keep driving until you run out of gas. So I tell everyone, have success metrics, have one metric of success per season. And we just aim for that. The word priority just meant one thing until the eighties. And then it was bastardized to priorities, meaning more than one thing, one thing, focus, follow one course until successful. That's all we do for one season. So in the first season, let's find your community. They already exist. They just don't know you exist, but they're out there. They can't wait to find out about you. In the second season, let's give them so much value that they love you. And the third season, it's about taking that love and driving it to something. Live events, merchandise, Patreon, products, services, whatever the thing is that you've decided, that's going to be the third metric, the third success metric on your third season, one metric per season. That's what we do. But you have to know what success looks like. Because when you hit it, I need you to feel it and go, I did that. Because then you'll you'll want to do it again. Because it's like first time you hit a golf ball and it goes perfectly straight. I'm told I've never done it. And you can't wait to do it again, no matter how many times you hit the grass after that. Like it's just that moment you feel it. And I've seen it with podcasts. I've seen it with people going, I just want to touch 1,000 people. I want to get 1,000 listens. That's that's my first metric. I'm like, okay, it's a strange one, but sure, let's, let's focus on that. Or I just want to get this person on my show. Makes me think about um, when we talked about why some businesses fail and we talked about imposter syndrome and doing the work. But actually, I would go as far as to say that this is number three. If you don't know what success looks like for you, then you will drive right past it. It's I, I see it because when I'm working with clients, I'm always anchoring the success. Because otherwise they meander. So yeah, really good. It's it's vital. It's vital to the lifeblood, to the passion, to the energy. And I think something happens when you when you achieve what you want, right? You obviously put the next thing up. Most people do. I personally don't. I quite like just going, I hit it and I'm okay with it and it's enough. Um, but most people go, great, I hit it. Now I can hit the next thing. And I can hit the next thing. It's like if I've got this far, I can get I can get to the next one. I know I can do it. And then when I hit it, Wow, we just hit it. And then, but I'll tell you what's quite interesting. And I've only just recently learned this. In fact, literally since our phone call on on Tuesday, sometimes people need to know about others to feel their success. So you might say to someone, one of our clients hit 30,000 in one season with us, absolute milestone, massive. And and all they wanted was downloads. They've got less than a hundred in three seasons before us, before working with us. And they were just over the moon, overjoyed, couldn't believe how, how well they had done. Another client who came in, who did, I think, a thousand in three episodes and felt nothing. And I said, you do realize the average podcast download in seven days is 27, 27 downloads. And then they felt the success. Then they were like, wow, oh my gosh, how? So almost I couldn't, it couldn't have feel success in a vacuum. They needed to know everyone else's position before they could feel that success. Yeah. Yeah. What would you like people to walk away with today? Mm. So this is a question that since our phone call has been driving me absolutely nuts (laughs) because I've been trying to think of the perfect answer. I don't think there is one. I think, I think I want you to know that you are enough. I hear so many reasons why people want to do podcasts. And the truth is I've I've yet to hear a real reason. I hear, I don't like my voice. Lots of people don't like their voice. I don't like my voice. I very rarely will go and re-listen to old podcasts because I don't want to hear 
my voice. And depending on who I talk to, my voice will change. If I'm really excited, my voice is very high pitch. If I'm talking to a man who I think is far more manly than me, I'll become quite deep and really push it out. <laughs> that sort of <laughs> that is ridiculous. Um, I've heard, I do, I'm not an expert. And I, I remind people there are two ways to, to do podcasting. You go in as the expert or you go in as the learner and you tell the audience, I'm a learner and I'm going to learn with you, the audience, until we're all experts. And that's great. You know, call the elephant in the room. Um, I, uh, I hear a million things. I did four episodes, Jason, and nothing happened. Well, you didn't do the work. There's never really a good reason. So what I want you to know is you're enough. That if you have a product or a service, you need a way to get attention to it because that's the only reason you should be doing this, except it's to meet people, if it's to get swag, if it's, you know, something else. Don't make an ego decision, which I know is very difficult to say. Well, my friend has a podcast. I should have a podcast. That is not a good reason to have a podcast. It just isn't. You're going to run out of steam. Try and get five, 10 episodes in the bank. Try and make every one of those episodes count. And when I say count, I mean, if you doing the podcast have learned something from it, that was a successful podcast. Mm, I feel that. I feel that in every conversation. It's my intent for every conversation. Yeah. And I think that's that's my last thing is have an intention for every episode and every season. That's it. Just the season and just the episode. Don't think further than that. Don't in 10 years I'm going to be forget it. This episode, what's my intention? Is it to get to know someone? Is it to find out certain things? Is it to explore an idea, a concept? Is it to get that person interested in your product or service so you can sell directly to them? But have an intention that you that you can look at the end of it and go it was successful. That episode alone, if it was in a bubble, if it was in a vacuum, is successful because it did exactly what I asked it to do. And then what does that season success look like and be intentional of that as well? And you are enough. And you are enough. I love it. Thank you so much, Jason. It was an absolute pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you'd like to find out more about Jason, Check him out on LinkedIn or on his website at Jason Allen, A-L-L-A-N, Scott.uk. And if you'd like to support the show, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts and reach out and let me know your takeaways from this episode. What would you like to know more about? Send me a message and I'll see you next week. <laughs>